The number seven is significant. As we said before, in the Bible, it typically uh, stands for completeness. And in this case, uh, it's significant because really the seven churches give us a complete history, a picture of the history of the church from Pentecost to the rapture. And remember again, we've said this many times, that uh, the church, when we use the word church, often in our messages here we mean uh, the professing church. The church is it's seen or perceived by the world. Those who profess to know Christ. Uh, as it was with the nation of Israel, so particularly in the latter days of the church, the true church, true believers, really comprise a very small part of those who profess to know Christ. Right now, one-third of the world's population says they're Christian. And who knows what a very, very small percentage of it really, truly knows the Lord Jesus. But uh, it, it really uh, fits in with the Lord Jesus said in Matthew 13 in describing the professing church, or as he called it, the kingdom of God. It started out as a mustard seed, a small seed, and grew into a huge tree, which, if you know anything about mustard seeds, they don't grow into trees normally. It's an abnormal growth. And certainly we see it in these last days. Uh, uh, an abnormal growth of professing uh, people who will be left behind at the rapture as the Lord Jesus takes the true church home to himself and will comprise what we'll later see as uh, Babylon the Great in this very book. So the true church had a definite beginning. It will be completed, then removed as the bride by her bridegroom. Verse 14, And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, these things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. You should be uh, familiar now with the pattern of these short epistles the Lord Jesus himself addressed to the churches of Asia Minor. He generally introduces himself uh, with certain characteristics, many of them flashing back to chapter 1 in the revelation of himself that John had seen. I love the way God reinvents grammar to convey truth about himself, don't you? We've talked about many of them uh, in the scripture. They're all over the place. They should jump out at you when you study the Bible. And here, God uses the word amen, which uh, we use usually as an adverb. Don't worry if you don't remember your grammar. It's not important. We often use it as a noun, but we never use it to describe a person, do we? You ever heard somebody described as the amen? It doesn't make sense, does it? You see, God takes words uh, that we use, but then he uses them in totally different ways in order to convey concepts that are beyond our, our uh, conceiving. And here, the Lord Jesus calls himself the amen. Just meditate on that a second, and you begin to understand what he's trying to communicate by that. Uh, we use the word amen, don't we, typically, you know, to indicate right on. You know, that's true. And what he's saying in calling himself the amen, first of all, he's the final word. There's nothing to add. Uh, what he says is unalterable. What he does is unalterable. He is unchanging the amen. Isn't that good? That's great. But also, uh, just when we say uh, amen, we mean that's true. So, uh, everything he says and does is certain, it's true, it's guaranteed. That's a great word, the amen. Then uh, he calls himself a faithful and a true witness. Boy, Tom and Angelo and Corey would love to find those at a crime scene, right? Huh? 
a faithful and true witness, a real one. It reminds us of the words of the Lord Jesus in John 3 when he was talking to Nicodemus. And he said about himself uh, in the witness of the Holy Spirit, he said, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen. Isn't that good? You know, that's what a good witness is supposed to do, right, Tom? You know, testify what we have seen. No uh, elaboration, no exaggeration, don't make up things, don't fill in the details for me. Just tell me what you saw. Now, remember who's uh, saying this. This is the Lord Jesus, God himself. He might have a pretty interesting testimony, don't you think, about the things he's seen, huh? (laughs) Things you and I have never seen and would know nothing about unless he told us. By the way, did you know that's one of the characteristics of the Bible? That's why God gave us his word. Because there are things in here, most of this is stuff we would never know and could not know unless he told us. All about God, all about man, heaven, hell, sin, salvation. And he's the amen. You can trust what he says. And when we say that, you think about this. You can take the things that Jesus says as a faithful witness and you can base your very life upon them. In fact, you should. Isn't that good? Can you think of any other sayings like that? Jesus, you can trust implicitly with your life. And then he says, the beginning of creation. And all of you must know, certainly he doesn't mean he's the first created being, but he's the one who began creation. Uh, Many verses, John 1 says, there was not one thing created uh, that wasn't created by him. He created all things. So he knows uh, and can speak authoritatively about all things. Imagine asking any other religious teacher about, for example, God. Think of it. You know, Confucius or uh, Muhammad or some Hindu religion. Asking them about God. They'd fumble. They don't know. They can't speak authoritatively about God. Now imagine asking God himself. You think he might know a little bit about the subject? Yeah. Uh, think of all the great learned men and religious leaders that have speculated about man, his nature, why he's here, and so on. I've often said, uh, when I was in college, I got a set of what's called the great books. You ever heard of them? Yeah, a few people are nodding. They're published by Britannica, and uh, they're collections of writings all the way from, I think the first volumes are uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey by Homer. So they go all the way back 300 B.C. Uh, through to Freud and James. Uh, they stop on the way with Newton and uh, Fielding and Swift and a few others. 54, I think it is. Uh, in all areas, science, uh, psychology, literature, social science, political science. Most of them, uh, in one way or another, tend to have the inside track on truth. In fact, they're venerated like that by people today. And yet, if you read them, it's very interesting. You've got 54 authors and 54 answers. No, they don't agree. None of them agree. 54 explanations of why we're here and why we do what we do and what we should do and shouldn't do. You think Jesus might uh, be able to tell you a little bit about man? He created us. I think he knows why we're here. (laughs) Heaven, hell, sin, salvation. He's the beginning of creation and the faithful and true witness, the amen. 
Once again, the purpose of this introduction, this revelation of himself, is to establish uh, to the ones he's about to speak to his uh, right and his perfect qualifications to be the perfect judge, because that's what he's going to do, isn't he? Imagine he's going to summarize in a few sentences a church perfectly, not exaggerating, not leaving anything out. A perfect judge. And so he begins, this is the last time we'll visit this little phrase, but uh, don't skip over phrases uh, because you've seen them so many times. If anything, take note because they're repeated. And here he says it again, I know your works. Now, I want you to think about that. Imagine Jesus saying that, I know your works. Saying that to you. I know your works. If I were to ask you right now to give me an exact description of someone's life. Describe them to me. I don't mean what they look like, but their character. Maybe somebody very close to you. You think you could do a perfect job? It'd be biased, wouldn't it? And there are, there are things that even you don't know. How about if I asked you for an exact description of your own self? <laughs> it would be interesting, wouldn't it? Would it be, what would really be interesting would be for each of us to come up here and give an exact description of what we think to be ourselves, leave the room and then have somebody else come up and do it. <laughs> and then begin to compare them. They'd be so different, wouldn't they? You know, your wife, your husband would give a completely different description from uh, maybe a good friend or certainly from somebody that barely knows you. But you see, the Lord Jesus, when He sees us, He sees every word, every action, every thought in its completeness. At that same moment, He sees the intents and thoughts of the hearts, the motives. He sees it all at the same time. We, even if we saw that, we couldn't understand it, could we? We can't weigh the thoughts and intents of the heart. We can't even weigh our own. The heart is deceitful and des- desperately wicked. Who can know it? We can't. But you see, the Lord Jesus is God, the perfect judge. And there's nothing, Hebrews 4, there's nothing hidden from his sight. It's not like he has to, you know, kind of uh, get a printout on all the data and then later evaluate it and make a decision. It's not like that. He sees it all. He sees into the very heart and the thoughts moment by moment and he sees it all, a complete picture, and weighs it all at the same time. And he's never wrong. And he immediately strips away a false motive from a true one. Because he sees it, you see. He doesn't have to put on his x-ray glasses or something. It's always there, naked and exposed, with the eyes of him with whom we have to do. It's good to remember that as believers, you know? You're not going to fool him. We're not, we're not hiding from him. That's silly. Everything about us he knows moment by moment, right down to the finest detail, and weighs it all. It says in the Old Testament he tries the reins of the heart, the, the very inner motives. He's never fooled. He's never deceived. He never misjudges. He doesn't have to readjust his thinking. He doesn't have to revise his opinion. It's just right there, right now. I know your works. That's right. And so, knowing their works, he says this, You are neither cold nor hot. 
I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew, literally vomit you out of my mouth. These are not encouraging words, are they? What a terrible thing to hear. He says, he's saying it in such a strongest terms, I want to vomit you out. That's what, that's what he says. It's a strong rebuke. He's saying, I have such a sense of revulsion to you. It's funny, you know, we think, well, if, if cold is bad and hot is good, then why isn't warm okay? You know, it's in between, right? Well, that's okay for showers and baths. But it's not for a spiritual condition. It's actually worse than the two extremes. Jesus says so, doesn't he? You know, he says, I could wish you were cold or hot. I don't like it that you're lukewarm. Cold. We can, we can deduce what he means by this spiritually. Someone that's cold, someone that's so unsaved, there's no pretense, there's no, there's no uh, pretending, you know. Openly acknowledging, look, I don't know Jesus. Give me somebody like that, you know, rather than a pretender. At least you know where they are, right? They know it, you know it. There's no harm to Christ's name. They're not uh, harming Christ by a, a hip- hypocritical life or his church, or other unsaved people, uh, spiritually. On the other hand, you take a hot person, well, we can deduce what the Lord Jesus means, a zealous believer, someone, as we say, on fire for the Lord, right? Hot. No question where they stand. Praise the Lord. But warm? He's talking about a professing, we use that word many times, words. They say they're a believer. They say they're a Christian, but there's no evidence in their life, you see. And this, Jesus says, look, I'd rather have you hot or cold than have you that way. And we can compare the Pharisees, you know, the religious people who had the words, but they didn't have the life. And they're blind, as we're going to see later. A person like that devalues the name of Christ. They cause the world to blaspheme him. That's why they say there's so many hypocrites in the church. Well, they're right. One is too many. They weaken and destroy churches. I gave you a list of five negative impacts that an unsaved professor has on a local church. They lead the unsaved away from God rather than toward Him. Jesus, when He rebuked the Pharisees, uh, told them that they compass land and sea to make one proselyte, one convert, and when they're done, He's twice the son of hell that they were. The harshest words in the Scripture are reserved for, for Christian fakers. And the greatest judgment falls on them. We shouldn't be surprised. And so, he has, he has harsh words uh, for the church at Laodicea because they're lukewarm. The saddest thing of all, I think this is the saddest thing, they didn't even know it. You know, I've said before, people who think they're saved and aren't, they're not going around deliberately, you know, trying to fool people in most cases. They just don't know it. And so here we have their sad state in verse 17. Because you say, I am rich and become wealthy and have need of nothing. And do not know. There's the chilling word. You don't know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind and naked. And here he is standing as that, with that piercing gaze right to the heart. And he sees it's so plain to him. If we could, if we could have his viewpoint... 
but we'd have to have his attributes to evaluate what we see. It would be so clear to us looking on this church. He sees it so plainly, you see. They don't. And so really out of an act of love and mercy, as he's going to say, he's trying to expose them to themselves. He says, you think it's this way, but I see it. It's, it's very clearly the other way. They say, I'm rich. I've become wealthy and have need of nothing. It's a big mistake. Made still today, uh, professing people, even Christians think that financial prosperity, prosperity always equals the blessing of God. In spite of Jesus' constant warnings against seeking or relying upon riches. First Timothy, but godliness with contentment is great gain, not uh, an IRA or uh, 800 shares of Microsoft. Godliness with contentment, he says, is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Their true state, it's so clear to the Lord Jesus who sees to the heart. His words, interesting, in verse 18 he says, I counsel you. He doesn't say, I command you. He says, I counsel you. And when we read these words of the Lord Jesus, we think of Isaiah 9. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. To ignore the counsel of a godly man and face spiritual disaster is one thing. To ignore the counsel of Jesus Christ is to face eternal doom. But he says, I counsel you. You notice that. You see, he's pleading with them. He's not coercing them, you know. You guys better get your act together. He says, I counsel you. It's their choice, you see. They must choose. The counsel is this. He says, to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. Uh, many people don't know this, but this is a very pertinent list to give to the people at Laodicea because these were the three big areas of commerce in their city. Laodicea at that time was famous for its banks and commerce, so he says, you need to buy from me gold. You see, they, they relied upon their physical wealth. Uh, the second thing they were famous for was the textile industry. I mean, they were, they were a thriving center for textiles. And so he says, you need to buy from me some white garments. And then finally, they were famous for their medicinal exports. In particular, there was a, a powder that they exported. It was known throughout the civilized world uh, for uh, applying to the eyes, for curing eye problems, eye salve. And so he says, uh, you need to anoint your eyes with eye salve, obviously inferring again that you have to get it from me, you see, that you may see. Well, we can, uh, I think, safely deduce what he means by these three. The gold, he says, you need true riches. And he means spiritual riches. 
right? You know, it, physical wealth is meaningless. You need, you're, you're spiritually poor, he said. You're bankrupt. And so you need to buy from me gold. And uh, our minds could run wild on what this could mean. There are so many spiritual riches that we have in Christ, right? But I'd like to begin and stop with just one thing. The Lord Jesus himself. How's that? Paul said in Philippians, he said, I count all other things but loss, right? And he meant everything. Just give me that one thing. The excellency of the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. That's good enough for me. That's, that's true riches. How much money would you take for that? How much money would you sell that for? What price would you put on that? Knowing Jesus. Somebody came up to you and said, I'll write you a check for a million bucks. Just to announce Jesus. Would you do it? Ten million? hundred million? It's priceless, isn't it? White garments. Well, we know from the rest of Scripture what that symbolizes. The righteousness of God. Boy, you can't buy that. The best I could do apart from Christ is my own righteousness, and I don't want to think about it. I mean, that's filthy rags in the sight of God. It stinks. And he freely gives us his own priceless, incomparable, perfect, spotless righteousness. What price would you put on that? Man, that's true riches, huh? And then finally, I have certainly is referring to the eye-opening ministry of the Holy Spirit. First, uh, to their own true spiritual condition, and then later, if they're to get saved, spiritual truth in general. How much is it worth to you to have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in your life? Have you noticed the difference since the Holy Spirit has indwelt you? What, what price would you put on that? It's priceless, isn't it? Is he true riches, and he's trying to get them to see that. Now, I'm sure uh, by now some of you are wondering. He says, I counsel you to buy. Buy? What's the price? Well, he's speaking figuratively because these are people of commerce. He says plenty what the price is back in Isaiah 55, where he says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen diligent to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. The price is free, of course. You see. Well, is it? To us it is. But these things that are priceless and without uh, measure of cost cost something. Somebody had to pay for them. We know that. There's no free lunch. And right there, the value is beyond estimation. It's the blood of the Lord Jesus himself. He paid the price. The infinite price. So that now he can offer them to us at no cost. So when he says, come by, the, the emphasis there is not come by. The emphasis there is come by from me. You see. They're obtainable no place else. Imagine that you could never purchase a crumb of any good thing from God. I don't care how much money you were to scrape together. You, you could melt down all the gold. You could, you could empty the, gold, the earth of all its gold, melt it down into one big lump. You couldn't buy a crumb of good things from God. It, he's not impressed by that. 
or your life. You couldn't impress them by your good works, anything you've done or your good character. And yet the Lord Jesus has bought and now offers us all good things freely. And that's what he's telling the Laodiceans. So he says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chase. And notice his motivation here. It's always love. He's not the guy up there with a big stick. He's, he's the guy up there with a big heart. And I, I love this. Uh, in this section, he, he, just, he uses such words to really uh, drive home how he really feels toward us. As many as I love... I rebuke and chase, and he says, in the midst of these words. It reminds me of Isaiah uh, chapter 1, where you can almost see the tears in God's eyes when he pleads with them after having uh, judged them time after time after time because of their idolatry and their forsaking of him. In that beginning chapter of Isaiah, he's pleading with them, look, please, just repent. He says, why would you be stricken again? And you can just picture him there, you know, as, as the parent with the child. who's was disobeyed and disobeyed. And I'll tell you, children, it really does hurt us more than it does you. Doesn't it, parents? Huh? Man, it hurts to have to discipline your child. Now, it doesn't mean you don't do it. God says, he that spares his rod hates his child. And so you're willing to forego that hurt for their good. And so it is with God. But he lets us know it's not an enjoyable thing. And you can just see his heart pleading with him there. You know, why, why would you be stricken again? And so here, he sees their true condition so clearly. You know, they're bankrupt, they're headed for hell, thinking things are okay. And he wants so much to warn them. And yet, they must make the choice. He can warn them. He can plead with them. He can show them in graphic terms where they stand spiritually. But in the end, it's going to have to be their choice. And uh, we're reminded of him in the city of Jerusalem, the Jews. When he, when he said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. How often I wanted to gather you. You know, you just seem wanting to fold them to his bosom. But uh, you, can, you can see them resisting, fighting, you know. Forget it, I don't want it. So, the command, therefore, be zealous and repent. I love this verse. Be zealous and repent. It links two words that are not commonly associated with each other. Zeal and repentance. He doesn't just say, therefore, repent. He says, therefore, be zealous and repent. And we don't usually uh, put those two together. You know, zeal, that's uh, getting enthusiastic, doing something with all our heart. You know, things like uh, football, music, TV, cars, hobbies, girlfriends, boyfriends. You could add to the list things that people get zealous about, excited. Yeah. You ever think about repentance in that way? <laughs> Jesus does. That's the kind of repentance he likes. You know, this kind of half-hearted, uh, you know, uh, half-asleep repentance. God hates it. He likes a zealous repentance. I love to see a new believer who does that house cleaning with enthusiasm. Don't you? That's a healthy sign, you know? 
going uh, through the house and uh, getting rid of those things, never to return, let me stress. Possessions, habits, associations, relationships, goals, activities, hobbies. Be zealous and repent. Not lukewarm, hot, you see. That's the need of many today who profess Christ. Zealous repentance. Man, I'd love to see some people get worked up. Yeah, about sin in their lives. Let's get rid of that stuff. I hate it. That's, that's called confession, by the way. The word confession in the Bible simply means agreeing with God. And that's what he thinks of it. You think he'd hesitate? If he saw that stuff, you think he'd go, well, I don't know, you know. That may cost me a little too much. He wouldn't think twice. Well, we come to one of the best known and probably the one of the most abused verses in the Bible, Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and sup with him or dine with him, as it says in the Newer Translations, and he with me. How many have heard that verse before? <laughs> How many have heard it used in an evangelistic setting? Right. It's not the setting in the Scripture, and it doesn't mean... Let's, first of all, let's make something very clear here. He doesn't say, I will come into him, and the word is not one word, into. You notice that? Look in your Bible there. There are two words, in, to. You got that? Do you understand the difference? It doesn't say, I will come into him, like inside of him. That's the first misinterpretation. He's not saying, I'm going to come into that person. No, I'm going to come in through the door to where the person is and have fellowship with them. That's what he's saying. Okay? And so it's this and a few other verses that people build this doctrine on that the way you get saved is to ask Jesus into your heart, you see, because he's there knocking on it. This verse does not support that. He doesn't come into a person. Not the door leading into me or my heart. The door here. The knocking and the voice, if we look at the context, refer to verses 14 through 19. His appeal. What we've just read. If there's anyone there, and he's speaking to individuals at this point, by the way, he says, I'm on the outside, and if anyone hears what I'm saying here, and my knocking, wanting them to respond, then if they open that door, what is opening the door? It's simply obeying him. It's listening to what he says and doing it. Repenting with zeal. Primarily, that's what he's got to say. Then he says, I will come into him, in to him. Okay, not into him. It's up with him. And again, he has a beautiful picture here of fellowship with him. And we should remember, remember Sardis. We brought that out. Uh, chapter 3, verse uh, 4. Remember that? They shall walk with me in white. Remember we talked about it. Isn't that a wonderful picture? They shall walk with me. It's the same picture. Close fellowship. They don't have it right now. Many or most of them don't have a relationship, let alone fellowship, you see. Okay. That's Revelation 3.20 in its context. 
And so he says, if anyone there at Laodicea, and later he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So it includes everyone who reads this. It began with the Laodiceans, but it's addressed to anyone who hears it. Then he says, if there's anyone who hears what I'm saying here about them, and they respond and act, they're going to have sweet fellowship with me. That's what he's saying. It's a, it's a wonderful promise. Coming in, coming in, pause, to them. And dining simply means sweet communion or fellowship with him. Zealous repenters experience this as they unclog their lives of debris. Ask yourself, think about this. We're talking about sweet communion with Jesus. It means, it means the picture he uses here is, I want, to, I want you to put yourself in this picture, sitting down at the same table and eating together. Previously at Sardis, it was walking together. Imagine, put yourself in that picture, walking with Jesus. The reason I, I do this is because I want you to ask yourself, if the Lord Jesus were to come to your house today, what would you have in common with him? Really try to imagine that in your mind's eye. Would you have something in common with him, you think? Not the Jesus of your imagining, but the Jesus of the Bible. As I thought about this, uh, I thought about that horrible experience we've all been through, you know. Uh, you meet someone, and you're just not the same kind of people. And for some reason, you have to sit together somewhere, you know. Maybe share a uh, side-by-side seat on a plane or in a bus, or, you know, you're waiting somewhere. And uh, we should be outgoing, but sometimes you just find, oh man, we have nothing in common. And you're forced to have to try to make conversation. (laughs) You know? And it just goes, it goes nowhere. Would it be like that? We want to be careful here because the Lord Jesus is in glory. And too often people get this kind of chummy idea, you know, me and my friend Jesus or something. And I don't want you to think that. But if we could revisit the days when he had his earthly ministry, when he ate with publicans and sinners, when he did sat down, sit down and, and dine, would he be a stranger to you and you a stranger to him with nothing in common? Or would you share, have fellowship, have many things in common, the things of God, a love for his word, a love for him, love, love of his works, his priorities, Sharing his goals for your life. Right now, for the church at Laodicea, there were many who claimed his name that would be left behind. And like many today, uh, left behind at the rapture, and later they're going to hear the words, depart from me, I never knew you. Nothing in common. Stranger. The picture in their mind of the Lord Jesus is nothing like the real Christ. And what a shock it's going to be to meet him as a complete stranger. Not knowing, never really having realized what he was really like. Having heard the word holy, but not caring about it. And he, not as their savior, but as their judge. This aspect of our life, that is the commonality with Christ, is more evident to others than you think. And the question we should ask is, what interest level do the things of Christ have in our lives now compared to other things? Well, he has a promise to overcomers again, as he does in every letter. He says, to him who overcomes, verse 21, I will grant 
to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Again, there's a similarity with the previous church. It's Thyatira. In 2.26, he talked about uh, ruling with him. Wow. Imagine some of his saints from his church, he is going to share the privilege, the reward of ruling with him. That's incredible. And notice here, I like this. He's been using this phrase over and over again. He who overcomes, I will blank. Here he says, uh, as I also overcame. Isn't that neat? He's the great, capital G, overcomer, capital O, you see. Overcoming, when he's using this phrase, he means the one who endures to the end, the one who perseveres, you know. Not the Roman candle, you know. The, the, The one that lasts to the end. That's Jesus, faithful to the end. And then finally, he who has an ear, and this is the last time we're going to hear this, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Again, this is not just addressed to the Laodiceans, and he makes that clear, but to all, not just Christians, to all people of all time who are willing to listen and obey. He says, he who has ears. That's what he means by that. Everybody has ears, but to the ones who want to listen, he says. So we come now, uh, at the end of the church at Laodicea, we've ended the second uh, section of the book. The first section was the first chapter, pretty much, as you remember. And we come to the second great division in the book. The rest of it now is going to be devoted to all that stuff that I know everybody was uh, asking me about early on, all that prophecy stuff. Uh, but even before we get to that, Jesus is not in a hurry. First, he's given us a, a panorama of the history of the church. Now he's going to spend a couple of chapters before we get on with all the action. Okay? He's going to give us a view of, of himself in heaven. And that, and that makes sense, doesn't it? Let's start there. That'll be chapters 4 and 5, which we'll pick up, Lord willing, next week. But uh, just we'll pause here and uh, leave behind the, the Laodicean church and realize that it's a picture of the professing church in the last days. And people are all excited that they're living at the end of a millennium. I'm excited because, you know, if you think about the dispensations of God, they don't, they don't end very often, you know. And we're living right at the end, the very end of a dispensation of God. There's going to be a big change coming up real fast. And I'm not talking about Y2K. The church is going to be gone. I mean the true church. And he knows who they are. Jesus does. Isn't that great? He knows his own. He's that shepherd who knows his sheep and they know his voice. And he's going to take each one and he's going to leave behind this huge mustard tree of professing Christianity that's going to continue operating next Sunday, midweek, in fact, whatever next meeting is going to come along. And it's going to continue growing and consolidating to become an even greater uh, force, if you will, economic and political, as well as religious on the earth, and become what he refers to as Babylon the Great later in chapter 17 and 18. And he's going to have a separate judgment just for that body alone. But uh, there are so many other scriptures. You know, we said before that when it comes to prophecy, prophecy, telling things of the future in the Bible, almost all of it really is devoted to the nation of Israel. There's, there's really, if you want to call this prophecy, these pictures, that's the only thing we have really of the church. 
as far as prophecy goes, and this really isn't prophecy. Um, but there, the, the one thing that God does have in his word that indicates what the church is going to be like is when he talks about at the very end. Several places in the Bible, he talks about what the church will be like, the professing church, before he takes it to himself. And let me just read one more as a tie-in with this church at Laodicea. It's from 2 Timothy, and he says this, But know this, that in the last days, he's talking about the church, the professing church here, perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, and here's the kicker for me, it's a great summary, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having a form of godliness, the words, the profession, you see, Maybe the outward structure, a preacher with a Bible in his hand. A, uh, a church, right? Is this the church here, you know, with the steeple on the top? The words of profession, but denying its power. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power. How do they deny its power? They don't get up and say, God is not powerful. They, they uh, deny it by the declaration of their hypocritical lives that show no change of an indwelling Holy Spirit. That's why they deny it. And he concludes by saying, and from such people, turn away. And so, uh, it's just a turn of the page in your Bible, but historically, going from chapter 3 to chapter 4 is a major shift in the dealings of God with uh, people. All the dispensations, just like this one, end in failure. Bill said that when he had his survey of the Bible, but let's qualify that. It's not a failure for God. God... God's uh, works are always successful. And he's demonstrating in this dispensation as in all the others the failure of man, the sinfulness of man, but at the same time his own great faithfulness and love. And, and at that he succeeds, by the way, every time. His patience is inscrutable. And he has a godly remnant in this dispensation as, that, as in the others, the true church. He knows his own and uh, he is soon going to take the church, which he said he would build, and which he has almost finished to himself. And in the end, none will cry foul to God uh, because he wasn't fair about things. Just these letters alone show it. He warned them many times. He pleaded with people. And if anyone dares to ask, where did you plead with me and when did you warn me? He needs only to show them the letter to the church at Laodicea. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we can honestly say that you are the true and faithful witness. And we know, Lord, in that day there's going to be no one pointing an accusing finger at you that you were somehow unfair or unjust. Just the opposite, Lord. We're going to fall down and worship you for your patience, your perseverance, your kindness, your goodness, your mercy, your love in the face of fists being shaken in your face. And Lord, we here who know you, we look forward to the day that we can worship you face to face. And we pray for anyone here, oh Lord, may they not hear those words, depart from me, I never knew you. We pray that perhaps this letter here that you wrote 
to another people at another place might hit home to their hearts, that they might hear it as if addressed to them. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.